so much knowledge and experience on such an important issue. I'm certainly not an expert myself, but it's really nice to find myself up here with an opportunity to share some of my own experiences. <clears throat> uh, to me, World Water Day is about people thinking about their relationship with water resources. It's about communities thinking about their relationship with their water. It's about thinking about how crucial it is to the functioning of the environment and about how crucial it is to the functioning and, uh, and health of communities. And it's with that in mind, I wanted to speak a little bit about uh, my own experiences of living and working in Laos with a Kamu village and witnessing their journey that they took to rediscover and uh, revitalize their relationship with uh, their water resources. Um, in uh, 2005, I was a recent graduate from the University of Northern BC. I'd gotten a degree in environmental studies and community planning. And CUSO uh, offered me a position to go to Laos and work as a community planning facilitator. And uh, I gladly took it, like I think so many other graduates. I was quite idealistic and I knew I wanted to get out in the world and make a contribution. I wasn't totally sure of what that meant or what it really meant to help anybody who knew a lot more about living in poverty than I obviously did, but I undertook it nonetheless. And uh, I arrived in Laos. And I'm sure you all probably have heard about Laos at some point or another. It's a small landlocked country squeezed in between Thailand and Vietnam and Myanmar and, uh, and Cambodia. And uh, it's six million people who are largely rural, uh, largely uh, dependent on subsistence agriculture, and very, very few have access to portable water. And when I arrived in uh, 2005, it was to find a country that was undergoing massive changes. Um, it was under incredible pressure for, to develop in a modern way, to transform its economy from subsistence agriculture to a, a market-based, export-driven economy, and to basic, basically supply raw resources to its much more powerful neighbors. And after a very, very brief crash course in learning how to speak Lao Loom, uh, I was sent off into the far north of the country to a small province of Udumsai, which is not far from the border of China. And I was placed in a, a, a provincial level environmental agency called the Science, Technology and Environmental Office. And I was fortunate enough to be placed with a, a, a group of young Lao men and women who felt really passionately about their country and they, and they really wanted to get out and get out into the communities and work with their people and try and solve some of the issues that they were dealing with. And Udumsai, like the rest of Laos, was undergoing massive changes. Uh, huge parts of the province were being clear-cut and changed over from subsistence agriculture to rubber plantations, and commercial corn, and uh, there was a large uh, resettlement program that the government was undertaking whereby they were moving ethnic communities out of the highlands and down into the lowland areas. And the rhetoric around that was something that I think we're all pretty familiar with. It's about nation building, about integrating ethnic communities into the modern economy. It was about accessing international markets and becoming more and more modern, etc something uh, eerily similar to what the government of Canada has used when talking about First Nation communities. Um, <clears throat> and the, the results are highly debatable, highly contested, very controversial, and 
you, you could debate that for a long time, and I have my own feelings about it, but I think the one thing you couldn't debate is that those changes were resulting in huge changes to the ethnic communities and their environment with dire consequences. And, and that was the situation when I arrived in the province. And the office that I worked with, their mandate was to get out and work with these communities and start to develop some strategies for dealing with those issues. Uh, whether or not you agreed with the program and the changes that were going on. And it was my job to help them with that. And I jumped into it as best I could. So my third day in Unamsai, we went out to our very first village. And it was a village that became very close to my heart. And it's the, the village that I want to tell you about. It was called Bantangui. And it was a Kumu village. Um, Kumu is one of the more dominant ethnic groups in the province of Unamsai. They've been living in the area for about a thousand years. Uh, practicing shifting agriculture and you, in order to get to the village we had to drive through 40 kilometers of backcountry roads and then we had to get out of the car and we had to walk up a river uh, to actually get to it and then you arrive at the community and it's basically just a small clearing in the forest what you would imagine any jungle village to be like in the highlands allow thatched, uh, thatched huts people farming very very simple and, and we, at first look you would probably think it hadn't changed in a thousand years, but you would be wrong. It was undergoing major changes. Recently, in the previous few years before I arrived, the village had been moved from a, a local mountain ridge where they had been practicing shifting cultivation for generations and had been moved down into the valley bottom where they were being basically forced with very little assistance to completely change their livelihoods to Mo, you know, semi-nomadic shifting cultivation to sedentary wet rice cultivation. They, where once they had a, they took their water from a fast-moving, basically clean stream. They were now taking it from a river that they shared with multiple villages that had come in contact with animals that was being used for irrigation, which was becoming common, uh, uh, contaminated, and people were getting sick and people were dying, and. That was the situation when I arrived in the village, and it was a, it was a village elder, actually, a, a few years after I'd been there, who said to me once that the only time you really know you've learned something is when you come to realize that everything you thought you knew about a situation is wrong. That's how you know you've actually learned something, and I think that sentiment perfectly captures what the Kamu taught me about water and water resources. So, the first day in the village, we sat down with everyone and the first thing that came up was water. They needed access to clean water. At the time they, they were boiling water but it was taking a lot of resources, it was taking a lot of time and it wasn't proving to be effective. They wanted new strategies and new tools, especially the women. They were adamant that clean water had to be the first thing that they would deal with. Um, I had no idea what to do. <laughs> I, I wasn't an expert in water and I really didn't know what to do at the time, but we, we had a great time in the village that day and we left w determined that we were going to come back with some ideas for them and we spent a lot of time researching and, and thinking about it and I, I'm not a religious person, but I, I've always been taught that it, if you're patient and you look for the signs, a solution will present itself and it did in the form of a German development worker from uh, the German Technical Corporation, who introduced me to something called the Biosand Water Filter. Now, if you've never heard of it, the Biosand Water Filter is actually a Canadian innovation by uh, 
Canadian engineer from the University of Calgary by the, the name of Dr. Mans. And basically he came up with an idea that mimics how water is cleaned in a, in a normal stream bed by running through sand and water. And he, he innovated it, he made it so that it's a small concrete case that you put in sand and, and gravel and you pour water through it and it can clean up to one liter per minute of water. And it, it's incredibly effective. It removes 95 to 100% of all the various parasites and uh, bacteria and viruses and sediments and heavy metals. It's, it's really cheap to make after uh, a capital investment of around $400 for the equipment, you can make uh, the filters from local materials for about $6 per filter. And these filters, the, the longest ones that they know of that are still working is 10 years. So theoretically, these things can last as long as the concrete does. So it, it, was, pr it, it was a very effective. So working with the German Development Corporation, and the Saskatchewan Council for International Corporation. We got some money together. I trained, I got my colleagues some training, and we returned to, to the village. And we, we returned to the village not just with the idea of doing the biosand filter. We, we, we went to them with a whole plethora of different options and strategies, and they had some ideas on their own. So we, we put everything together, and we, they came up with a package of strategies that they were going to use to deal with their water situation, and things that included uh, building a gravity-fed water system to bring a cleaner source of water into the village, uh, building toilets, uh, doing land use planning uh, to, to manage livestock better, to lower the sediments and the contaminants that were getting into the water. And they settled on the idea that the biosand filter is something that they wanted to do. So we worked with them to train them to build the biosand water filter, to properly maintain it. And then lastly, we worked with them so that the village would basically set it up as a cooperative where they could build uh, the filters and then sell them to other villages throughout the area. So we had, we had a good little package and everything seemed pretty good. Um, and we set about making these filters, but it, it wasn't easy, especially the biosand water filter. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We, we started out, I think the first dozen of these filters didn't work at all. Uh, it, it, technically, it's fairly simple, but if you don't get the, just the right mix of sand and gravel, and they just don't work. You, you pour in water, and the water has to come out of these filters at exactly one liter per minute. Too fast, the water isn't clean, too slow, and it just simply becomes unusable. So we put them together, and we pour in the water, and sometimes it would plug up like a cork, and no water would come out at all. And other days we'd pour it in, the water would come gushing out like a geyser. And this, this went on for weeks and I just, I couldn't get it right and I was really starting to get frustrated with it. And fortunately the people in the village were extremely patient with me and they wouldn't let me give up. Uh, they, were, they were intent that this was a good idea. And throughout the whole process they, they kept asking me this one question and it, it, I, I just didn't understand why they kept asking, it just didn't make any sense. And they'd always say, you happy? You happy? I was like, oh, no, I'm not happy. This stupid filter won't work. <laughs> and then I, I go back to working on the filter, and they just shake their heads. I'm like, okay. And we go back, and every time one of these filters doesn't work, you have to take it apart. You have to take the sand. You have to take the gravel out. It's a really messy and time-consuming uh, process. So before I go on, I, ha I have to describe and explain a little bit about what hot pee is. Um, hot pee is a concept not just in Kamut culture but uh, throughout Lao and I think it's in Thailand as well um, but in Lao um, 
directly translated, uh, hop means to look, and pi means ghost. So the concept is to look for ghosts or spirits, and it's a process that they undertake in everything that they do. They, they look for the ghosts and the spirits that guide our lives to guide their hands in whatever it is that you're doing. And if you don't find hot peat, whatever it is that you're doing, it's not going to work. Um, I, I wasn't picking up on that. I had, I had a lot of problems with the Lao language. There's a lot of times where words sound, you know, mysteriously close to English words. And even though they never spoke to me in English, whenever I didn't understand, I figured that they were trying to speak in English. And, you know, I didn't understand or they didn't understand, but it didn't matter. Um, so this went on for quite some time. And I guess they figured this was something, you know, the foreigner, the flang, had to figure out for himself. And they were just, they were going to wait. They, they had faith in me that I'd get there eventually and that I'd figure it out. One day, uh, months later, we're, we're building a, a filter at the, the local Buddhist temple in the village. Every village in the country pretty much has a, has a temple of some sort or another. And we were there one day, and uh, we were building it. And I, at this point, I was starting to get desperate. The villagers had made a huge uh, investment into the technology and into the project. And I, was, I really didn't want to let them down, but things were starting to get kind of desperate. And it was around dusk. And I don't know if, it, if any of you have ever traveled in Asia or been to a Buddhist temple, but dusk is a really important time of the day. This is when the monks would gather and, and they would uh, do a call for prayer and they would sing and chant and play drums and chimes and invite the spirits, the pi, back to the temple for the day. And I, they were watching me and I, I think they had a plan. They figured if I wasn't going to hot pee, they were going to do it for me. <laughs> so <clears throat> we had, the, uh, we had the, the filter was all finished. We put it all together and we were getting ready to test it. And testing is quite simple. You just you pour in a you pour in a whole bunch of water, and you time how long it takes for it to fill a one-liter bottle. One minute being that precise goal. Um, so we poured in the water. We had the, the bottle ready. I started the timer, and the monks in the background they started playing their their music. They started doing their chimes, and they're playing on the drums, and they're chanting quietly at first, you know, and it. 15 seconds go by and I'm looking at it and it's not even a quarter of the way full. It's, it's not coming up fast enough. I'm thinking, this is it. I, I failed. It's not going to work. And the monks, they start to kind of pick it up a little bit and they start to chant it and they're drumming and people are starting to pray a little bit around me. I'm not listening. I'm not happying yet. And uh, <clears throat> so th 30 seconds go by and the, the bottle now is way over halfway full. The water's coming out way too fast. It's going to be a total disaster. And the monks, they really started to pick it up. And they started to bang away, and they're really getting it. The people around me are starting to knock. They're praying. They're chanting. 45 seconds, I wasn't even looking at the bottle anymore. I, I just really couldn't take another disappointment. And people were starting to chant around me. And the minute came, and I, I stopped the timer, and I pulled the bottle away. And everybody went quiet. And I looked at the bottle, and it came up to within one millimeter of the lip of it. It, it was perfect. We had finally gotten it right. There's no way that we couldn't have done it better. And I held the bottle up and I yelled, No Nati! One minute! Everybody cheers! <laughs> they explode around me. There was more nopping. The monks did a big rock finale for us. It was, it was a magical moment, to say the least. And that night, there was, a, there was a celebration in the village, and there was lots of food. Somebody, you know, killed a pig or something like that. And... And there was lots of clean water, and the women would uh, they would carry these jugs around with them, 
and they'd come up to you and they'd pour you a glass of water and you'd have to yell, Nam Sa'at, which means clean water. And everybody would cheer back you, Nam Sa'at. You'd have to have a drink of the water. And, and I remember at one point in the night just sitting back towards the, 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 you know, the side of the room and watching everybody drinking the water and celebrating and dancing together and, and seeing all the challenges that this village confronted. And they had found this one thing that they had managed to transform in their in what had become their adopted home and it, it can be an extremely powerful experience and I remember uh, one of my colleagues came up to me and he said that ah, you happy no <laughs> yes I am happy thank you so <laughs> I think for me that's that's really what water world water day should all be about basically it's about people asking ourselves and asking our communities and asking our politicians and asking our leaders, whether they're religious or they're community leaders, what is our relationship with our water? What are we doing with it? And about making that visceral connection back to our water. And when we talk about water and the oil sands or we talk about water in First Nation communities, I see, I work with a lot of First Nations now and I see them struggling with the same types of questions. What we have to ask ourselves is how does that fit with our understanding as Canadians, as British Columbians as First Nations, how does that fit with our ethical relationship with our water resources and what are we doing to maintain that connection? And I think this is something where we can all learn from the Camus and ask ourselves, you happy? Thank you very much. Thank you.